0: Global issues with life-threatening capabilities. It's not as far back in our history as we may feel right now. The coronavirus pandemic has made many think back to World War II and what it means as a country to survive in an unpredictable climate. Stephen Rackman is an English professor at Michigan State University and the co-author of the book Cholera, Chloroform, and the Science of Medicine, A Life of Jon Snow. I spoke with him about the similarities, but also vast differences, in how communities changed in the wake of a global crisis.
1: The connections, I think, have to do with marshalling resources towards something that, that affects us all, um, I was talking to my students about this, and they, they felt like this was the biggest event that has occurred in their lives. And, and I think on a broad sense, uh, there's this, this cultural memory of, of the country pulling together. I mean, these students have actually grown up with the deep irony that our country has been at war for, in its longest war in its history. But they don't feel it as such, because on the home front, we've been kind of trained to ignore... Our, our foreign conflicts uh, as a war effort. Um, so to me, that's, that's the big emotional connection. Uh, there's a deep desire to try and pull together and we look to that war as a place. Um, the other important things I think are the calling on industries to manufacture things for a dedicated purpose. Uh, of course, it was easy in, um, in Michigan in World War II to see how uh, General Motors and Ford, great automobile manufacturers, could convert those manufacturing entities to tanks and Jeeps and planes uh, and war machines instead of uh, domestic production of automobiles. So those, to me, are the big connections. There's also a sense that we're fighting or fighting against a disease and it's very common to to use metaphors of war when fighting a disease, especially when we're doing it all at the same time collectively. But unlike World War II, where the fronts were in the European theater and in the Pacific, where is the front here? It's everywhere and nowhere.
0: It's interesting. Uh, other people have made the connection between the shock and trauma of what we're going through right now and the shock and trauma of what happened with nine eleven. But with your students, your students are eighteen, nineteen, twenty. They were either not born or just born when something like nine eleven happened. Uh, I'm really curious about what 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 they're saying to you, and what emotions that they're sharing with you about how they feel about what's going on right now.
1: Exactly what you said—that they felt that nine eleven was something that they were dimly aware of. They were made aware of, but it really they were too young at that point to really either have um, experienced it at all or uh, if they weren't born or just just simply too young to any direct experience of it. So, uh, but they're certainly aware of it, and, and they, they spoke to me. I asked them about this yesterday and the day before, um, and they felt like uh, some said they felt like they were in a movie that it was surreal, and that this was the largest event that they had ever been involved in. Others were anxious and depressed. They felt that people around them weren't as willing to sacrifice uh, as in uh, what they believed, you know, the, the feeling was around 9-11 or World War II, um, and that we, that we weren't prepared. Um, and uh, others kind of said they're, they're just not sure how to feel, that there's a lot of confusion um, uh, that they're getting um, mixed messages. Some people are saying, you know, this is overblown. Other people are saying this is a tremendous disaster, though, you know, I think that feeling, the feeling of disaster is setting in. <laughs> you know, it seems to be shifting. Um, I remember talking to my son who was in college, and he he was reading a, an article in the New York Times about students leaving And he said, you know, by the time that article came out, that mood and feeling had already passed. So there's this kind of sense of the ground shifting underneath your feet. Um, And yet, at the same time, you're watching Netflix or painting your nails or cleaning your oven. Um, You're not sure what you're supposed to be doing. There's this incredible mundane quality to um, the kinds of quarantine and sequestration we're undergoing. So... It feels like there are people who are really, of course, dying and suffering and others who are uh, facing uh, extreme you know, financial situations or even uh, abuse or domestic situations that are going on because of this. Um, but the students aren't sure which way to go uh, or what's the right action in this time. Others, frankly, feel invincible and they're out there working for Instacart. Um, and they, they say, you know, I, I just don't feel like it's going to get me. Um, kind of a soldier's luck, as they used to call it, you know, when you dodged a, a a bullet or a shell. They definitely feel this is a generationally defining moment. And I certainly agree with them. I mean, I, I'm trying to think of a time where I felt this strange and the strangeness of these days. And, and it's it's now.
0: You know, as someone who has studied uh, the events of World War II, we, we tend to... I uh, heavily romanticize the greatest generation and the way that we envision society pulled together at that point and, and, and what we, we still have from history that, that 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 showed that. One, do you think that we'll be able to pull that off these days, so many decades away from when people maybe had closer communities than they do now?
1: Yeah, well, I, as for the room, <laughs> that's a really interesting question. Um, I... I tend to feel a little romantic surge uh, that that the basic goodness of human beings and Americans will prevail. I think that the time scale we're we're working on is a difficult one with with times like World War II or if we think about the 1918 flu pandemic, which we really didn't solve. We just endured it and it, it kind of dissipated on its own, but there were, you know, measures to mitigate it. Um, we're, we're in a war footing already. I mean, the the war in Europe began in 1939. We entered the war in 1941. So there's a good several years. And, and we had been in a depression for a long time, for a decade. So the country had already taken a lot of measures um, to get itself prepared for the coming storm. We had some time, to prepare our government, but our government is heavily divided. And um, and frankly, um, public health is something that I, I think our government finds difficulty in finding the money or the funds or the, the political will for preparedness. Of course, we're going to change for a while now, but um, you generally see we don't have the time in the sense when you're facing a, a global pandemic that's moving as fast as this one is. So we've had a couple months, we've blown those in terms of quick reactions to what was happening as it was coming uh, to our shores from from Asia. So it seems to me that the whole time scale of it, um, our fleet was destroyed in the Pacific in December 1941. We had to rebuild that fleet and it took several years to do that. And we ramped up gradually towards that end, and there was a lot of coordination. Um, we're trying to coordinate all of that kind of effort in months. Um, so whether we or any any people can do that seems to me uh, an open question. I think we're we're, we're trying. Um, maybe that the tasks involved are a little bit less ambitious <laughs> compared to you know mobilizing against human enemies. Uh, in, in World War II. In general, I think you know the good news is that we always learn from pandemics. The bad news is that like the movies that we watch in which epidemiologists save people from dying, we usually only learn or act after the fact, after the epidemic has subsided on its own. Jon Snow, whom I've written about, that great 19th century British doctor and father of modern epidemiology and anesthesia, was the man who demonstrated that cholera was transmitted orally through contaminated drinking water, and he famously had the handle removed from the Broad Street pump in London in 1853. Um, He readily acknowledged after that outbreak that the public health gesture of removing the handle was largely symbolic. The outbreak had already run its course before it was removed. But it stood as a symbol for public memory, and when cholera returned to London in 1866, they remembered Snow's work and protected the people who had depended upon the pumps and the public water. We need to continue to find ways to learn and keep our public health lessons alive for every generation. I do fear that our political system, with its ambient amnesia and lack of will to invest in infrastructure or even plan very much for a rainy day, is not geared for it. But that may change um, the fire hose of revenue. The Congress has just unleashed on the problem may be a sign of change or it may be a tacit admission of guilt about the lack of foresight the system has exhibited. Maybe it's both.
0: I think it is absolutely fascinating what you've written about. Again, I want to say that you are the writer, the co-author of Cholera, Chloroform, and the Science of Medicine, A Life of John Snow, a famous epidemiologist. You're also a professor at Michigan State University. And by the way, we are talking to Stephen Rackham right now. And, and I want to ask you, as you've studied uh, and researched for this book, what are some of the generational shifts that have happened in the wake of epidemics?
1: You know, if you think back to the, the 1300s and the Black Death that swept Europe in that time, you have sort of a, a, an epic there, and, and, and they, that was little understood. And you had populations, though, moving from one place to another. So you would have this broad sense of when there was a time of plague, uh, the people who had money and wealth and power would move from one city to the country. Um, the same thing sort of happened during the, the, the plagues uh, up to 1660s or so. And then with the cholera, cholera was really a first modern kind of epidemic because it was coming out of the endemic regions of India and then spreading across Europe and then around the globe. And it was clearly being uh, you know, transmitted by ships. And and in developing sort of imperial structures that were in place, um, whether it was the British Empire or or French or um, or in America. Um, And so you started to see um, that these were modern sort of health problems, Um, but they didn't want to use quarantine. Quarantine was always sort of a last resort uh, because of, of issues of trade and commerce. And so public health lessons have come out of those, but they were often controversial because Um, the health authorities may have not had a proper understanding of um, what was causing the disease, how it was being communicated, what the vector was. Um, So a lot of our epidemics have been uh, growing, uh, you know, where where our culture grows in in a way to understand, oh, um, it's a great modern improvement to put in a modern water supply, but if you don't protect that water supply from contagion or, or elements that can contaminate it, then suddenly you create the conditions for a pandemic. So to me, uh, pandemics always reveal the hidden structures, the hidden forms of communication in a society. Um, pandemics reveal who the society cares about and who it ignores. They reveal our complicated and invisible uh, food chain. For me, you know, the uncanniness of this moment that we're in has to do with actually the internet. You know, for 20 years, we've been observing and talking about virality on the Internet, the phenomenon of memes, uh, videos of pandas sneezing, getting millions of downloads. Um, Each event narrowcasted, you know, first on desktop PCs, then on laptops, then smartphones, and now ever narrower through discrete apps and feeds on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, chat groups, etc. All of these things... Going viral, as the phrase has it. Everyone enjoying the metaphor of the virus. Well, now in 2020, we have become the Internet itself in our bodies. We are watching a coronavirus go viral. We now get to feel what it is like to be the Internet, to think of every person, every touchscreen, every ATM keypad, the door handle itself as a site of virality no longer an object for our own use and convenience, but a site through which the worldwide web of connection has left its traces. The worldwide web and the worldwide world have begun to mirror each other in ways both large and small. I saw a report just last night on the BBC America about how misinformation spreads, and the reporter used essentially an epidemiological model to demonstrate how a bot might reprodu- reproduce a false notion. In this case, that the exposure to sunlight might kill the coronavirus. And, and, and he used this model to show how it spread. Um, our shortages in masks and ventilators, toilet paper or water reveal the increasingly intricate length of our supply and manufacturing chains and their fragility. And so for me, if it feels uncanny, it's because it feels like we've been practicing this for about 15 years. Um, I'm sure you recall when Facebook first exploded with seemingly hundreds and thousands of inane, mundane photos of someone's breakfast, lunch, or dinner. Well, now we're sharing photos of our food, and they don't seem silly anymore. Um, they seem terribly significant. You know, I teach a lot of 19th century American literature and death, as Emily Dickinson once wrote that's a thing significant. And so does isolation. So to me, that that seems to me one of these places where epidemiological thinking is mirroring our social present. That's what I meant by an experiment in social connectivity that's going on right now.
0: It's almost as if we forgot the the, uh, the, the physical interconnectedness of all things in the wake of the past 20 years of the internet and only thinking in the interconnectedness of ourselves across the world globally through these electronic connections. You know, Stephen, uh, one more question, I, and I'm not even sure if this is a question. I, I've been, and probably a lot of other people have been thinking a lot about things that will change after this, not just on a large social scale, but on a micro scale. I'm wondering yeah. when we're going to shake hands again as a form of greeting or if that will be something that will end in the past the way other other forms of greeting have ended with cultures. But you got me thinking now about that term uh, when something goes viral. I'm not sure I'd ever feel comfortable using that again as far as uh, something becoming popular on the Internet.
1: And not at this moment. It's 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 too heavy. I, I couldn't agree more. I think you're absolutely right, and it makes us think about, as you say, I, I I know that that it's so common, especially for Americans, you know, to reach out a hand. I remember when the fist bump came in, and and people are thinking about bowing now to each other, um, as a you know some way to still reach out and show a sign of respect without touching. Um, I've been thinking about language too, and how we reach out to each other with language. Um, there's a lot of a lot of poetry, a lot of song making going on, a lot of dancing, uh, if virtually um, people are thinking of all kinds of ways that we can somehow do things simultaneously or in sync with one another together. I teach a lot of American literature and I kept thinking of some lines from a Robert Frost poem, a very early one called The Tuft of Flowers. And it's a poem about um, a speaker who's just mowing and he notices that uh, another mower has spared some butterfly bushes so that the butterflies will come. And, and he thinks about that, that gesture um, and analyzing the work of someone who's not present there, but is someone working with him. And at the end of the poem, he says, he's kind of taking a break in the shade. And he says, and dreaming, as it were, held brotherly speech with one whose thought I had not hoped to reach. Men work together, I told him from the heart, whether they work together or apart. uh, I feel so much that that's what I've been doing and all of us are doing. We work together. We tell each other from the heart whether we work together or apart. That seems to be the new way in which we as a a society will try to figure out how to go forward.
0: Stephen Rackman is a professor at Michigan State University and an author of A History of How Epidemics Changed Culture. The book is called Cholera, Chloroform, and the Science of Medicine A Life of John Snow. I got to speak with him for Culture